God. You may be seated. Great worship. We are a people who are awaiting our king who is going to return one day in glorious splendor. All wrong will be made right. And that is our living hope. That's Jesus Christ. Well, it is great to be back here this morning opening up God's word with you. My name is David. I'm the pastor here. And if I haven't met you yet, please don't leave without me being able to say hello and at least introduce myself. We're in a series called Called Out. And this is through the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you have your Bible, uh, please take that out and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, this is a little bit of adjustment with these lights and, and the new atmosphere, which, which I'm liking. I'm trying to adjust it myself. So hopefully, hopefully you're being able to adjust to that as well. But um, praise God for all the people who are putting in so much service, so much volunteer work. Um, I'm just so grateful that we have a church of people who are on mission and who are sacrificing for the kingdom. It's, it's awesome to see. Well, hopefully you're at 1 Corinthians 7. We're going chapter by chapter through 1 Corinthians. And when I am discouraged in my own life, whenever I kind of feel like I'm just failing, when I'm not doing what I need to do, I maybe look at other successful Christians and, and compare myself unwisely to them, I am encouraged by what Paul says to the Corinthian church at the very beginning of this book. He says you are sanctified, and he calls them the church of God at Corinth. Isn't that awesome? This whole book is about their identity in Jesus Christ. The, the word called out, uh, that phrase, it comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which literally means a called out gathering of people. And the Corinthians had a lot of problems, just like you and me. But the answer to every single one of those issues that they faced was their identity and their hope in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're seeing that again and again and again. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30 says, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So the Corinthians, if you've been with us in this series you know that they did not have this lily-white testimony, okay? This isn't a group of third-generation Christians who went to bed at night praying and singing a gospel song with their parents. That's not the Corinthians, all right? They were saved out of dark addictions and bondage. They lived in a, a morally abysmal society, and they came out of, had a lot of baggage when they were called into the, into, into the light of Jesus Christ. And they had a lot of questions for Paul about that. So one of the interesting things about chapter 7, if you want to look at that verse 1, Paul says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So there's a slight change in tone here now in chapter 7, because in the first six chapters, Paul was addressing all of these issues that he just had to address before he could actually start answering some of their specific questions. So the whole first six chapters was like, hey, before I get to that, let me explain this first. And you know what? I might need to explain this first and this. And I've, I've learned a lot from the first six chapters. I hope you have too. But now Paul is finally getting around to saying, hey, you were asking questions about this. You wanted to know about your identity, about your social status. And the topic here in chapter 7, he's going to be touching on marriage. He's going to be touching on singleness. He's going to be touching on divorce and all of that it entails with your social status. Because these, these Corinthians, sometimes it was like they came to Christ, but my boyfriend didn't come to Christ or my wife didn't come to Christ 
or I, my, I lost my wife now. What do I do? All these questions about their identity in Jesus and how that played into their social status. So if you could just zoom into your life right now. Some of you are in unhappy marriages. Some of you are in broken marriages. Some of you have been divorced. Some of you are wondering, well, do I have, is there a person for me? I want to get married, but I'm single right now, and I'm ready to mingle. And, and there's all the different categories of people, and we like to, like, find our identity in that. But the gospel breaks down those barriers every single time. And in Christ, we're going to see that we all have a common purpose and a common goal. And what this sermon is about to be about, what Paul is going to teach the Corinthians, and then we are going to learn from this, is that we need to embrace our calling. Wherever we're at, marriage is a gift with challenge and with purpose. Singleness is a gift with challenge and with purpose. And you need to embrace your calling, to live out your calling with joy and satisfaction for what God has for you. So let's open up and start reading the first few verses here. Uh, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 9 as Paul starts getting busy with their question. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Okay, that's... That's a little awkward for our current status uh, of our social climate, but look at the rest of the verse. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So the first point today, marriage is a gift with purpose and with challenge, with challenge and purpose. And the first thing that Paul has to clear up is the same thing we were talking about last week in chapter 6. It's this high view, this celebrating sex in marriage. Now, I don't want you to get confused by, by verse 1 because you can see there it says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And I've seen this verse before, literally in youth groups say, don't touch the girls, guys, and girls don't touch the boys. They would take this verse. But is that really what Paul is saying when he literally just in chapter 6 talked about the, the amazing gift that sex is and how it should be triumphed and, and it should be a treasure in marriage? Do you think Paul would contradict himself like that? So how do we know this is not Paul saying, hey, men and women, don't have sex with each other? Any English teachers in the room can interpret this, uh, interpret this with the language correctly? There's quotation marks around this. Do you see that? And this is not Paul saying this. This is Paul addressing the Corinthians' 
point of view. You see that in the Corinthian church, a lot of these people were saved out of a lifestyle that abused sex and that triumphed sex to this place where it was their God and they misrepresented it and it was a completely unhealthy thing, all right? So a lot of God-fearing people, when they come to Jesus Christ, this is an easy trope to fall into, they pendulum swung to the opposite extreme and now they were looking at sex as, hey, it's for procreation, but I shouldn't enjoy it with pleasure. I'm going to just hands, uh, hands up, arms up, like push this back. I'm going to be very tentative and very, very, uh, very careful about all this. And they didn't value it the way God wanted them to value it. And they didn't use it as the gift that God had for them. Okay? So Paul is actually saying, no, 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 no. You're wrong. Don't pretend that sex isn't what I made it to be. It's this amazing gift that I have given you. And you should use it the right way. This is, this is for one man and one woman in marriage. It is knitting two souls together, two becoming one. And there's, it's deeper than physical. We saw this last week. It's way more than just a physical act. It is, it is bonding your souls together. And it's a deeply spiritual thing. All right? So, so value it the right way. Celebrate sex in marriage. That is exactly what he's saying. He's spelling it out. It's one man, one woman. This is not open season to have sex with whoever you want. It's not, it, it is heterosexual and it is monogamous. It's woven into the DNA of what, of what marriage is. That's what we're talking about here, this conjugal rights. Now, the interesting part is... Um, People will tell us, especially people in the world today, that this, this whole idea, like look at verse 4, the beginning of verse 4, are you kidding me? How outdated is that? Christians, what's your problem? But you've got to let Paul finish his sentence, right? Because what he says there is radical. He says, okay, yes, verse, the beginning of verse 4, the wife does not have authority over body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And this is the second piece that Paul's talking about is mutually give from equality. And what Paul dropped, I hope you understand this, what he just dropped here is absolutely extreme for the current climate and the current day that he was in. Do you understand that you can comb through all the historical documents and no one was saying this before Paul being led of the Holy Spirit said this? The only other time we have throughout the annals of history that anybody actually wrote something like this is also in the Bible. It was Song of Solomon 2.16 where the bride there says, he is mine and I am his. But if you go into the Jewish culture, the Greek culture, the Roman culture, whatever culture you want in the first century here, men looked at the woman, the wife, as their legal property. And often it was with my wife, I have a family and I have heirs. And this is, my, this, is the, this is the legal side of things. And then for sexual pleasure, I'll go to someone else on the side. That was the Corinthian culture for sure. But Paul says, no, no. Men and women, you're equal. You're both created in God's image. And the husband and wife, you were to give mutually to each other. This is radical, and this is awesome, and this is freeing. You can go to places where the gospel has not had an impact, and you still will have a society 
where the women are dominated by the men. And the, the, the patriarchal figure controls that, and he looks at the wife as, as his own, and it's his property, and he can do with what he wants to. But the gospel here, through Jesus Christ, is the thing that frees us and opens us up. Literally, all of the rights that women have, these, these, these rights that we see now today, 2,000 years later, they rest on the shoulders of what we see in the Bible of men and women being equal. So Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, shatters that concept, and, and we have Christian feminism here at its apex. This is new, and this is awesome. The Bible shows that women have equal rights. I love it. Now, verse 5, look at verse 5. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So Tim Keller actually says, has a quote about this verse. I want to show it to you. This is from the book The Meaning of Marriage, which is a great book. I know, I know some people in here have gone through that book with marriage counseling. I've, every time I've spoken at a wedding, I've always used that book as a major resource, Meaning of Marriage. But this is what Tim Keller says here. Paul is telling married Christians that mutual, satisfying sexual realizations must be an important part of their life together in fact, this passage indicates that sex should be frequent and reciprocal. One spouse is not allowed to deny sex to one another. That is what Paul is saying. And if I could add to what Dr. Tim Keller is saying, I would say that one partner should not deny sex from the other either. Deny or demand, I would say. I would add the part about demanding sex. Um, Married ladies, should he have sex with you whenever you want? Yes, he should. Vice versa. But there's also provision in here, as you can see in verse 5, to say, hey, I'm actually not ready right now either. I need to take a short break. I need to, there's a season here. There needs to be something that needs to happen first. Let's pray. Let's get this right. Let's talk about this. And if you're ever in this position where you're trying to manipulate or deny or play the Trump duty card... You're pro there's probably some much worse problems going on if you ever have to play that duty card, okay? So let's not go there. That's not the spirit of what Paul is saying. The spirit of what Paul is saying is, hey, husbands and wives, you were designed for this. This is God's gift to you. Don't deny each other. Don't demand it from each other. Husbands and wives, you are equal in sex, and it's a good thing. I don't think I need to illustrate that. We're just going to keep going. We're going to keep this PG. But here's the third component. Um, fight temptation with fire. All right? Fight temptation with fire. In your marriage, sex is a gift. Marriage, uh, in, marriage can help you with sexual temptation. 100% it can. You can see that there in, in verse 2. You can see it in verse, verse 5. Um, even in verse 9, at the end of verse 9. Yes. Marriage can help you with sexual temptation. You've heard the phrase, fight fire with fire. Great. But marriage cannot save you from sexual temptation. All right? Everyone who's married in this room can shake their head with me and they can say, yeah, that's true. That's not going to stop me from being tempted sexually just because I'm married. That's, that's not the be-all, end-all solution. Marriage is not actually going to save you from anything 
as Paul goes through this text. Marriage is great. Marriage is a gift. It's, it's a challenge, and it has a purpose for sure, but marriage cannot save you. If you put too much on your spouse, and you look at your spouse, your husband or your wife, and Julie and I have had to learn this, as your, as your savior figure, the one who's going to keep you from being lonely, the one who's going to solve all your problems, fulfill all your needs, and make you feel loved, you're going to put too much on that person, and that person is going to fail you, because they were never meant to be what your Savior and what your God was meant to be. That is only going to be through Jesus Christ in a relationship with God. So important that you get that. Marriage can never save you. can't save you from anything. It can't save you from loneliness. It can't save you from feeling empty. It can't save you from feeling unloved. Now, on this first point, I love to practice what I preach I know that y'all are not going to have probably some problems here, especially the married people going home today and trying to apply this message. You can all connect the dots on that. But what I need to say beyond just to married people here, what I need to say to the students in this room, to the widows, widowers, divorcees, everyone in this room, this is so important. The greatest enemy of this truth about sex, the greatest enemy of this, is the entertainment industry and the entertainment culture that we have in America today. Because they give us the complete lie that is 100% backwards from what the biblical truth is. The exact opposite. And if you spend any time watching TV, listening to pop music, you know that our culture tells you that sex is for fun outside of marriage. And as a matter of fact, they will tell you the lie that the greatest enemy to your sexual pleasure is getting married. I mean, am I right on that? Like, Julie and I love to watch TV shows. It's, you can count on one hand the number of TV shows that actually elevate a solid biblical view of marriage where it's between a husband and a wife, and that's the most fulfilling, gratifying, soul-satisfying type of sex that is ever going to happen. Most TV shows don't say that. Our music doesn't say that. Um, but what he, Paul is telling us here in this passage is that, yes, celebrate sex and marriage. Yes, mutually give through equality. Fight temptation with fire, for sure. It's better to marry than to burn. But don't be embarrassed, church, by what the Bible says about sex. Having, having a marriage is not going to destroy or ruin this great gift that God has given you. It's going to amplify it. So marriage is a gift with challenge and with purpose. Celebrate sex inside of marriage. And now some of you are thinking, well, wow, David, like, you're not really painting any of the negatives about marriage at all. <laughs> where's, where's the challenge part of this, right? This just sounds great. It sounds all good. Well, in this next point, we're going to see some of the challenges in marriage, and we're going to see some of the benefits of singleness. Marriage isn't easy. Just like singleness isn't easy. And point two is singleness is a gift with challenge and with purpose. Just like, just like marriage. Singleness is a gift with challenge and with purpose. In verses 10 through 16, uh, Paul is giving a lot of the clarifications that he has to give to the Corinthians who had all these questions. All right? And in verse 13, he is talking specifically to... A Christian spouse who is married 
to an unbeliever. And as what he says there is stay married if your spouse wants to stay married. It's really that simple. Just because you came to Christ doesn't give you now the freedom to divorce your spouse. As a matter of fact, millions of people have come to Jesus because of this biblical point. Because the husband or the wife stays committed, they stay faithful, they continue to love and respect their spouse, and then they eventually come to Jesus Christ. That's beautiful. This is amazing. So Paul's saying, no, don't divorce. But then in verse 15, he gives some freedom. And he actually allows a provision for divorce. Because if there is abuse going on, if the marriage covenant is completely broken, yes, God hates divorce, but he hates the corruption of his picture of marriage even more. And he says there in verse, in verse 15, let it go. Let it go. Let it be so. There's a freeing statement here. God has called you to peace. So he allows a provision for sexual immorality, for a just absolute destruction of the marriage covenant that, that he says you can have divorce in these kind of situations. Now, we already looked at verse 17. Verse 17, uh, let me just point that one out again, though. Maybe I didn't point that out to you already. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. That's verse 17. That's really, that's really like the heart of this passage. Everything centers around that verse. We're talking about embracing your calling, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you've lost a spouse, whether you're divorced. No matter where you're at, let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is saying, live your life with purpose, with joy. So Paul has some super valuable things here to say about singleness. And, and this is where the case for singleness comes in. It comes in right here. Pretty much the rest of this chapter, he's showing the benefits of being single and the unique gifts that you have being single that a person who is married does not have. But before we get to that, can we just back up for a second and kind of realign our mindset on what it's like being single? Being single, it's easy to feel left out. And even in the church, unfortunately, even in the church, the church in America has not always done a great job at communicating and, and partnering with singles, single adults who are not married. And they haven't always been given the freedom to lead and to thrive. I felt that when I was single. I was married when I was 27. I met Julie when I was 26. And so there were some years there after college where, you know, I was the single dude living in a bachelor pad with another guy. And we both wanted to get married really bad. And nothing was working out for us. We would uh, we'd work out and we would crank up the Josh Groban and Andre Bocelli and just like sing our hearts out as we were working out. We were just pretty sad if you think about it. But, but no, that was us. And, and I, was in, I was coming from, you know, a college atmosphere where I'm like 26 now. I'm not dating anybody. And all my friends are married they're, they're, or they're at least engaged or dating. Some of them are even having kids. And I'm like, wow, what's going on? God, 
have you forgotten about me? I want to serve you. I want to do all this stuff, but like, I can't do everything that I feel like I want to do. It was hard. I, I, I wrestled through those doubts and those struggles. Those were real. I mean, I was at a church, and not to say that this is a bad thing, but I, I wanted to do everything I could possibly do. I, I was a member of this church for two years, and they gave me the role of assistant third grade boy Sunday school teacher. And <laughs> Not that that's a bad thing, it's a good thing, but I mean, the guy who was the third grade boy Sunday school teacher was like three years younger than me, but he was married, and it was like, oh, like I just felt limited, and I felt restrained from doing what I wanted to do. Singles feel that sometimes in the church. And what we're seeing here, what Paul is saying to the Corinthians is, look, singleness is a gift. You have all these opportunities you have, have a calling, embrace it. Don't look down on it. Don't feel like you're a second-class person. It's not a problem. You're not weird. It's okay. As a matter of fact, it's good in a lot of areas. In a lot of ways, it's a great, great thing. So you're not lacking anything. And you're not missing anything. Jesus was single <laughs> when he was on earth, right? He was full of life and purpose. Marriage is a gift, singleness is a gift, embrace your calling, they are both gifts. And that's what verse 7 says, they're both gifts. Wherever your social status is at. May I add here that the last, um, if you're a person in this room who are single, you're single and you're single because you've lost your spouse. That's not the gift, right? You know that. I'm not trying to minimize the hurt and the pain that you're feeling because what you went through was really hard. If you've been divorced, what you've gone through was incredibly rough. That's not the gift. The gift is the fact that now you find yourself in a new place, in a new season, with new open doors that you would not have had if you were married, if you had that family still with you. So I know there's pain, I know there's hardship that you have to work through on these things, but what the truth here is, is God has a plan through every single thing. Even the worst things that happen in life, God will still work through them. And you may be, think, you may be thinking, being single is so hard, and I agree, but let me tell you, having toddlers is also really, really hard, okay? They both have challenges. They both have purpose. They both have opportunities. All right, so when you're, yeah, when you're married, you also get this gift called a mother-in-law, right? And you, get, and you get another family, and you get more holiday trauma, and everything doubles because everything becomes one, right? So it's times two on everything. So when you're single, you can thrive off of your breadth of focus. You can thrive off of a breadth of focus. You don't have a trillion things to figure out with your kids. Not that, I mean, kids are a joy, kids are a gift, of course. I'm not trying to say I don't like being a dad. I love being a dad. But when Paxton, my three-year-old, comes home every single day and he says, hey, Daddy, I didn't punch any kids today. Because he did punch a kid a couple weeks ago. You're just like, oh, I got another headache to deal with. You don't have that when you're single. You have a greater breadth of focus to serve God with the mission that he has given you. And even if that only happens for a while, even that's a season of life, enjoy that season of life right now. Verse 38, 
Um, if you want to look at verse 38, we've been jumping around a little bit more than usual today because there's just a lot of moving pieces here. Paul says, so then he who marries is betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Will do even better. And he's saying, hey, singles, you're in a good place. You may be thinking, wow, is Paul actually saying being single is better than being married? Well, yes, he actually is saying that if you have the gift to be single. All right? If you have, if you have the desire and the passion to be married, what does he say in verse 9? He says it's better to marry than to burn, to be inflamed with passion. So he's not saying don't get married. He's clearly saying get married if you need to get married. If you feel led to get married, you have the desire to get married, you should pursue that. But you don't have to pursue that if you don't feel led to do that. That's what Paul is saying. Being single has great benefits. The other piece of this is you can maximize your eternal mission without earthly anxieties. Without earthly anxieties. He, he lists off all this stuff. Um, look at verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound a wife? Are you bound a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if your betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who will marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. So this is so simple. Marriage is a gift. Singleness is a gift. Don't look down on one or the other. Don't elevate one to be the be-all, end-all solution to my problems. Because married people feel lonely too. And when they feel lonely, a lot of times they're thinking, what's wrong with me? I have friends and I still feel empty. It's because there's something lacking in the relationship with God. And we have a hole in our hearts that can only be filled with our relationship with our creator. That is true for singles as it is for married. It's true for divorces, divorcees. It's true for widows and widowers. It's true for all of us, no matter your social status. You have so much value and passion and energy if you're single. You have so much life and vitality that you can offer the church. Now, a couple of misperceptions about being single I want to address is sometimes people think, well, yeah, if you're single, you just got more time and more money. Go out there, more time and more money, get to it. And I would say, like, for the married people especially, I mean, the single people know I don't have more time and more money always. That's not always the case. <laughs> Sometimes I have school debts. I mean, I have a job. And it's like, it can be, it can be more, if, more crazy sometimes being single in that, in that regard. So I'm not trying to paint this picture that you just have more of everything because you don't. And as a matter of fact, even being single right now in our socially connected Facebook and Instagram world where everybody's online, it can actually even be harder to find genuine community when you're single sometimes. So let's not misunderstand these applications. We all face the same struggles. Married people, they face struggles with sexual temptation and loneliness. Single people, in a unique, slightly different angle, face the same struggles with sexual temptations and loneliness. 
And singles and marrieds need to team up together and work together and under, try to understand each other and be there for each other. This is one of the reasons why I, our church has, has life groups without just one social class of people. We don't want to just have all single people and all divorced people and all married couples in the same life group. Like, some of that's going to happen naturally for sure, and, and, and I get it. You're going to group up with your friends, but we want to keep a little diversity in there because I feel like we all have something to offer each other. And the person who's been married for two, three years can learn a lot from the couple who's been married for 15, 20, 30 years, okay? And the person who's single can learn something from the person who was single for six years and they just got married two months ago, right? Like, we should team up, and we should, we should do this together. You may be thinking, another thing that we both think, especially singles may be thinking, is I need a healthy, active, sexual lifestyle just to thrive so my body won't shut down. Another lie from the world, okay? That's another falsehood that the world tells you that is not true at all. There's a guy named Preston Sprinkle. And he's a, he's a pastor out in Idaho. He has a podcast. He's an author. He said this, uh, Preston Sprinkle, he said, maybe I don't have a slide for that. I'm not sure if I, do I have a slide for that one? No, I don't. Okay, great. My bad. <laughs> Preston, our man, here he is. He says, the whole idea that sexual expression is essential to human flourishing comes from Freud, not from a Christian worldview. You, you see what we're saying here? Just because you're not having sex doesn't mean you're not living the life that God has for you. The world tells you that you have to be fulfilling this and having these experiences to really be alive fully. That's simply not true. Thousands and millions of people have lived for Jesus, have had satisfying, joy-filled, pleasureful lives doing all that God wants them to do without having sex. Married people know that's not the answer to all of your problems. It's not. So don't let the world tell you that. Jesus is all you really need. And a relationship with him, knowing that he has called you out of darkness, he has saved you, he has given you a reason to live with purpose, it's always going to be challenging, but resting in the gospel that Jesus died for my sins. Like what we sang about, he shed his blood for my sins so I can have a new life now. That is what is going to give you a living hope and a peace and a purpose that passes all understanding. So loneliness, yes, uh, we talked about that already some, but anybody can be lonely and getting married isn't the way that you're going to just solve that problem either. The answer, again, is having a relationship with God. There's one more point that I want to point out here from the passage, and this is the point that ties these two together, with marrieds and with singles. It's our common mission. And point number three is time is short, so actively wait with the gift that you have been given. You can see this as, as Paul is talking. He is expecting the return of Jesus Christ. Time is short. So
So actively wait, whether you're married, whether you're single, don't let your social status hold you back. Don't feel like you need to wait for something to happen before you can serve Jesus. Of course not. We should be actively waiting for Jesus to return. Look at verse 29. Verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. This is pretty radical. And... Whenever I read passages like this where Paul is just waiting for Jesus to return and he's expecting Jesus to return immediately, I always like have this like skeptical bones in my body start like going off like, wow, what's wrong with this picture? This is 2,000 years later. And, and Jesus still hasn't returned. Paul was expecting him to return in his lifetime. What's he talking about here? Is that a problem? I would say no, it's not. No, it's not a problem to await for the return of Jesus Christ because... The Bible teaches us that God is waiting to return because he wants to save more people. Aren't you glad he hasn't come back yet? Because I'm saved. And if you have repented of your sin and turned to Jesus Christ by faith in his death and his resurrection, you can have new life. And you can live with him for eternity. So what is going on when Paul is talking about time is short, this is a new season. He's talking about a new era, the church age era. And what he is saying is, you don't need to live your life in the concept of time that you used to have. You used to be all about like, hey, I have to do this, this, and this in this short period of time. And I'll, you know, I've got plenty of time to figure it out. And what Paul is saying is, church, whether you're single and you're on mission for Jesus, or whether you're married and you're on mission for Jesus, the way you look at time now is a gift that is going to be here and it's going to be gone tomorrow. So don't waste it. Actively wait for the return of your King, of Jesus Christ. So don't view marriage, don't view possessions, your business, don't view your anything, joy or sorrow, as something that you hold on to from the worldly perspective and that it's mine. And as Fountains of Wayne would say, I have all kinds of time. No, that's not right. We don't have a lot of time. Jesus is coming again. If you could stand up with me right now, we're going to sing about that. We're going to sing, even so come again. Jesus had a bride. His bride is the church that is you and me. And we need to actively wait for him to come. And in the present time, we need to live for him, all of us, no matter your social status. There's no second-class statuses out there. We're all one in Jesus Christ. Let's praise him right now.